Today's episode of the Netflix podcast is brought to you in part by UnLondon's 121 Studios, London, Ontario's premier digital media hub and co-working space. Visit 121studios.ca for more information. The Netflix podcast is also a proud member of the Electric Streams podcast network. For more insights into streaming media like Netflix, Amazon, and HBO original series, subscribe to Electric Streams on your podcast platform of choice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Netflix podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Netflix. I'm your host, Dylan Clark-Moore, and today we're going to be talking about The Fifth Element, which is currently available on Netflix in Canada. Before we get into it, I'd like to issue a couple of warnings. This conversation does contain some light spoilers for The Fifth Element, as well as some of the language may not be suitable for all listeners. Don't have much in the way of introductions for today, so let's just get into it. I'm here today with everyone's favorite co-host, Caroline Deason. Hi, Dylan. How's it going? Good. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. Is there anything cool that you have been watching on Netflix recently, Caroline? So recently I've been doing um, just kind of more rewatches because this month two series, Netflix original series that I really enjoy are coming out with uh, new seasons. So the first one is Master of None. So I watched the last couple episodes of that. And then the second one that I'm super excited for is season three of Bloodline. I mean, I'm excited for both, but I'm really excited for Bloodline because they left on a cliffhanger at the end of season two and I need to find out what the fuck happens. Right. Did you like season two? I was reading a little bit about it and it's got like, it's got like a 50% fresh rating. Okay. So season one, I watched probably six or seven times. It was very rewatchable, yeah. I mean, part of that has to do with just the fact that I like to rewatch things a lot and a lot um, because of the depression. That's a symptom of my depression coalescing and rewatching things. Oh, okay. For a second, I was like, I didn't know that it took place in the depression. No. (laughs) No, it doesn't. It takes place in the modern day. (laughs) You can read more about the first season of Bloodline on our website. I write about uh, a spoiler-free kind of delve into what I'm finding between the different, or sorry, the similarities between the Southern Gothic genre of American literature and season one of Bloodline. And basically, to make a long story short, I wouldn't be able to write a literary interpretation of the second season. They seem to par down a lot of what made it weirder and less formulaic than a lot of other kind of crime dramas. In my piece on our website, I talk about how I feel like it was Netflix's answer to True Detective. And so it was kind of trying to be So a it little... had to have a shitty second season. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that the second season is shitty. It's just I watched it once and the plot moved forward and, okay, what happens next? And that's that was it. the thing that happened. Yeah. There was no, there was not nearly as much nuance um, with the characters. I was not invested with the characters or in the characters. Um, there was no mystery on the same level, but the last 
like 35 seconds or a huge cliffhanger <laughs> and I need to understand what happens next. I was actually really worried that they wouldn't have a third season because it wasn't super well um, well received. So, right. And I have not yet watched the trailer. I'm keeping all of that secret right. for myself. So you're, you're hoping for big things. So like we know that we're ending. I mean, it's generally a good thing when a show right, Do they know that, that they're ending? ending? I yes. don't actually. Yeah, oh, season okay. three is the final season. Yeah. How, like, uh, uh, did they did they announce that in the trailer or like how did they? Uh, well, it was announced a few months ago that like oh. okay yeah we're wrapping this up like we're filming the third season but this is it which okay. was kind of a big deal because this was one of the first ones that Netflix had like canceled right like uh, Hemlock Grove I think just kind of ran its course I don't know if they actively like decided to stop oh but Bloodline was like yeah not enough people are watching this we're canceling oh it. seriously yeah oh I didn't know but that but they're they're. I, I believe, and I, um, if I find the trailer, I'll embed it in the episode's show notes, but uh, I believe that it, it takes a form of, like, uh, every good story deserves a good ending, like something well, like yeah, that. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think more shows should feel like that. Like, not not every show needs to have nine seasons mm-hmm. or 43 seasons or, no, it's 28 seasons that The Simpsons has now, 29 seasons. About whatever it is, yeah. Yeah, but because, you know, just like not every movie needs a sequel, not every show needs to be more than two seasons, three seasons long. And I really like the idea of it being an encapsulated story, especially if you know anything about this show. It's about one family. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole heck of a lot that you can branch out with, you know, once all these siblings are dead. So <laughs> right. ending it in third, three seasons is fine by me. Um, and then another show that I have been watching since the last time we spoke was Grace and Frankie, which is another Netflix um, original, the third season of Grace and Frankie. Did you watch I did. Yeah. Yeah. It was so good. It was so good. Yeah. I'm not going to say anything spoiler because of spoilers. And I, you know, I hope that you're watching Grace and Frankie, but yeah, season three was great. Season two had a lot of gravitas to it. You know, they threw in a lot of things that throw in is not the right term because it was very fitting, but they explore things that aren't normally explored on TV. Not since the Golden Girls, I guess, where it's like end of life problems. And season three had some of those, but it was a lot more about the dynamic between Grace and Frankie, which I really appreciated. As opposed to, like, the unanswerable questions of what do you do when you're approaching death exactly. and dealing with uh, dementia. And, yeah, that was that was a tough season, season two. Definitely. Season three was, it was funny and, and heartwarming and still challenging sometimes. Yeah. But, but in a more sitcom-y sort of way. Exactly, yeah. yeah. My mom didn't like season three as much, um, and she said it was because she thought there was too much Saul and Robert. She doesn't want to concentrate on them as much. And I actually felt like there was less Saul and Robert in this <laughs> one, but maybe, whatever. I agree with her, though. Grace and Frankie are the, the two that I want to concentrate on. Yeah, more. this is a great fr- uh, Grace season, yes. I thought. She was yeah. really terrific. Uh, cool. As for me, I have been watching uh, some of the stuff that I'd already talked about last time, uh, more Mindy Project, which if you haven't listened to the last episode, go back and check that out on Room 237 if you want to hear my thoughts on season whatever we're on, four, five of the Mindy Project. Yeah, back half of four and five. Um, other things are they added new episodes of Nature's Weirdest Events, which if you're in for just like a great put it on in the background show or just like a true Netflix and chill show where, you know, you can look up and see something interesting. Uh, Nature's Weirdest Events. Hang is on just... a minute, honey. <laughs> right. Wait, shut up. There's locusts. But they, they deal with stuff like, okay, so here's like what a locust plague actually is. And then they show you one happening or like they do a section about tumbleweeds or wait, like, just why are... like weird events that happen in nature. And... Wait, wait, are tumbleweeds dangerous? Well, it, there's a, there's this, tumbleweeds are like becoming an epidemic i guess where like there are like more and more of them than there ever have been they're becoming this like invasive species so they show you like 
these highways where there's hundreds of tumbleweeds going across and like they don't really do any damage but it's just like a real nuisance problem oh. but they deal with like uh like weird creatures that come up or like weird plants and weird invasions and like snowstorms that just like take over a town all of a sudden and then disappear like it's all it's exactly what the show is called nature's weirdest events and it's all like segmented so if you're bored by something like in five minutes you're going to be talking about something different now oh, you can nice. look at a weird fish yeah it's <laughs> it's great like it's, right. it's the kind of thing that netflix was built for and then on a much heavier note i started watching black mirror from the beginning which have you? I haven't, but I've heard. I've heard about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's oh boy, that's rough. So like the first, I watched the first season and the first two episodes. I was just kind of like, okay, yeah, like this is you know, I mean the whole idea is it's this like anthology series looking at the potential horrific sides of technology or like right. The direction it's like the Twilight Zone, but with technology. Right. It's like the Twilight Zone meets Ex Machina, where it's like it's set five minutes in the future as is the phrase that we used for that, I think. Yeah. But looking at different aspects of how technology could go horrifyingly wrong. And then the third episode just, like, really hit home because it was dealing with, like, relationships and families and and that sort of thing. Is the third episode about this guy who's in love with this girl who goes on a game show? No, that's the second episode. Okay. Yeah. Because the reason that I ask about that is because everyone on the internet is like, oh, my God, Black Mirror. And so I asked a friend who had watched it, like, what is so affecting about this show? Like, is it gruesome? You know, like, is it violent? What's going on? And he decided to tell me about that episode. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much you want to spoil on this show or whatever. But in my opinion, that episode is not that hard hitting. (laughs) Like, like, the things that make that episode hard hitting are that uh, whiny man loses his so-called possession when a woman isn't interested in him, right? Like, that's, like, okay, there are Twilight Zone episodes like that, cool. But this does not merit the whole internet talking about how affecting it is. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, I think different episodes hit different people in different ways. Like, we were talking about this around the office at work, and, you know, people were saying that, like, episode two was really effective for them because they were, like, because of the section with, with the woman in particular where she ends up going on trying to win a singing competition and she ends up being recruited into like degrading porn instead. Right, yeah. Kind of against her will to escape this other alternative reality that they have. It's like halfway through, so spoiler-ish, sorry. But the one that hit me was about like watching this guy who's like, uh, the idea is they have implants in in their heads where they can replay events from their lives, like their entire lives are recorded. So this guy is able to not just in his head go back and be like, wait, what was that minute detail of that conversation that she had with that other guy? He's able to actually replay it and, like, zoom in on it and just, like, micro-focus in on, like, every nuance and every motion of people's actions and kind of driving himself insane Mm. by doing that. But then there's also, like, the possibility that he actually has a reason to be paranoid and where that paranoia comes from. Like, it's all very... Like, these sound like interesting premises for shows, but I do really think that this is the type of thing that is lost if you're not watching it. Because you telling me this anecdotally, I'm like, okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. You know, cool sci-fi... Yeah, stuff. It's, it, but mean, it doesn't. It, it, it doesn't to me like translate to being like, "Holy shit! Oh my god, Black right. Mirror! What the fuck!" Right? Like, yeah. yeah and it, it was something that I was just kind of like, "Okay, like I I've heard about this thing enough. Let's give it a try." And for the first couple episodes, I was like, "Oh wow, yeah!" Like they're, I mean, they're showing me stuff I've never seen before. And then every once in a while, you'll encounter something that, you know, because they're tackling different stuff, I guess, just with with different people, different things will hit them in certain ways, and then it's right. just. Yeah, it can be kind of rough. 
Uh, but yeah, that's what I've been watching. But what we're actually here to talk about this episode is a movie from the year 1997. We were 10 years old. We were 10 years old. From uh, director Luc Besson, we are going to be talking about The Fifth Element. We want to introduce the movie the same way that Netflix does. So first, if you hover over the title, the description says he's a 23rd century cabbie trying to make a buck. But when he meets a gorgeous alien, all hell is about to break loose. I mean, yeah, that, sells, that, that would sell tickets. <laughs> yeah. And then when you click on the title, or then when you click, the description changes to, in this imaginative sci-fi epic, a 23rd century cabbie finds himself involved with a fetching alien who may hold the key to saving the world. Okay. I can never tell when you're mad or just like... You're, I'm always mad. You're numb to these at this point. <laughs> yeah, I'm more you're numb. Like, marketing. I am, I'm actually... I keep getting tripped up on 23rd century. Like, it just... It, as if that really helps us. It's far future. Right, exactly. Like, I don't know. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> the categories this belongs to, according to Netflix, are action and adventure, action thrillers, adventures, and sci-fi thrillers. And the mood it assigns is imaginative. So it doesn't give it comedy or anything comedy comedic. No. Interesting. Despite all the like pratfalls and waka waka comedy. Yeah, there's that's like and actual intentional waka waka comedy. Yeah. So Caroline, why did you want to talk about the fifth element? That's a good question. So <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Podcast over. Who are you? Um <laughs> how did I get here? So uh, The Fifth Element is a movie that I actually only saw for the first time two or three years ago. I remember renting this on tape. Yeah. And I didn't know much about it other than the fact that Mila Jovovich is in it. And I love Mila Jovovich. And also that our good friend, well, my good friend and your mutual acquaintance from kindergarten. <laughs> Let's not build a like a hierarchy here. <laughs> She's mine. <laughs> Naomi uh, loves this movie. And... One of the things that I know about this movie is because Naomi, when she was in um, her graphic design course at Fanshawe, had to do rotoscoping. Do you know? Are you familiar with rotoscoping? Um, yeah, by way of uh, what was that movie? Yeah, what is that movie? Always asleep, something like that. <laughs> no, never waking up. No, not a. <laughs> <laughs> not the Linklater one. The uh, the Keanu Reeves one. The Philip K. Dick one. A Scanner Darkly. Okay. Yeah. What's the what's the never waking up one? Waking life. That's it. <laughs> Sleepy time. <laughs> Nap time by Richard Linklater. <laughs> now that would be a great movie. And speaking of Richard Linklater, the reason I well one of the reasons I love Mila jo- Jovovich so much is because she is in my favorite movie of all time, which is uh the the one yeah, Days and the, Confused. Days and yes. Confused. Thank you. Exactly. Sorry. I'm a bad man. Anyway, so I've always known about this movie, and like I said, uh, Naomi had to do this rotoscoping project, and she chose to rotoscope the scene where Mila, where Lilu kicks ass. And so I always like knew about it, and knew that Lilu was cool, and knew that Naomi liked it, and know, I know that Naomi's cool. So I never had anything against this movie. It just never was in my kind of radar. Um, but then I moved in with my friend Joel, and Joel also loves this movie and sat me down and like forced me to watch it. And I loved it. And it was one of those movies where I was like, how have I not seen this before? And it wasn't at all what I was expecting it to be. And this is maybe why I asked about why Netflix hasn't said anything about it being comedic. I didn't realize that it was actually supposed to be funny. I didn't realize how camp it was and how ridiculous and over the top it was. And the more I learn about it, the more comfortable I am with it being campy and silly. Right. And I also keep hearing about these people who hate it. 
because it is so campy and silly. And they keep comparing it to like other space operas, like Star Wars, mm. as if Star Wars isn't the campiest, most silly thing in the world. Right. But these are these people who are blinded to the that yeah. aspect of the franchise. Nostalgia is a powerful drug, yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. And yeah, and so rewatching it for this podcast was super fun because the over-commercialization, the imaginative, yes, fantastical world of the future that is only slightly different than ours and only in ways that are like slightly more efficient, but not in ways that are like actually very good for anybody's quality of life. Right. I love this movie. So as soon as I saw it on Netflix, which apparently might be something to do with the fact that it is now... 20 years old yeah we found out uh i found out like 10 minutes before we started recording that this is apparently the 20th anniversary but yeah i, I guess we'll see how far that is from when this ap- episode actually gets happy birthday fifth element yeah this may pull the curtain back on how long it takes me to edit this. <laughs> 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 yeah for me i remember i remember going through like the first time i saw this movie just being like what because i mean i was pretty young when i saw it like i said i remember renting it from probably rogers video or blockbuster and then watching it again as an adult and then about three years ago i watched it again and tried to put it through a more critical lens and i watched it and i was like i need to find something to write about with this and that's when i was first kind of starting to come to an understanding of like not that I, i claim to have any kind of like professional or like no, no, but you were, like, made aware of... Yeah, made aware of, you know, like, the, the concept of feminism, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's look... Let's put those glasses on. Let's look back. And then just being like, oh... Wait, wait. Are those glasses, like, the ones with, like, you know, the slinkies on them with the eyeballs? Like, like that? Uh, pretty you know? much, yeah. 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 Those are feminism glasses? Yeah. Those are your feminism glasses. Yes. <laughs> and that they're... They're embarrassing to see on me and I'm really bad at them. Yes. <laughs> and they, they obstruct your vision more than anything. <laughs> oh, I kid, I kid. Um but I I ended up writing this piece called uh, The Fifth Element Offers a Depressing Women or a Depressing Vision of Women in the Future. Okay. Um so I kinda of put it through that lens and I mean we can Yeah, I, I would love I, to I, talk about that. I think that we've sort of uh it's going to be quite a bit of what we talk about with this yes so basically the gist of what i wrote about with that is i i, I was like okay well where are the female characters in this because i mean there's lilu but then i was like okay so what what is everybody else doing Wait a minute. here why is lilu a female if i can build up to that for okay. a second so uh, i was like okay so like where were the women in this movie and then i was so i i kind of scrubbed through it and i was like okay i'm gonna stop every time there's a woman um so there was the mcdonald's employees mm-hmm. which was where they're kind of doing this I guess send up of commercialization where they were like, okay, now we're only gonna have like attractive women in these like very cleavagey shirts selling burgers. Um, so that's one role that women fill in this version of the future. Who and are that, also like flirting with their yes, very flirty. Yeah. yeah, when 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 the person is already ordered and paid, so there's no actual reason to be flirting with them anymore. <laughs> right, except that's customer service, and you're ensuring that they're gonna come back later. Like sure. that's yeah, I assume. I, I yeah, the line that I put here is their job is to McFlirt a sexual charge into the fast food experience. That's good. Are you proud of that? I am. <laughs> um, and then there are the the flight attendants, mm-hmm. which I thought was especially hilarious because like you spend most of the voyage asleep. I know. I love that. So it's just like there's, there's seconds no for that that, that, yeah. that you're going to be like ogling these women with again like their low cut tops and their like midriffs and whatever. Yeah. But, like, they're, you know, explicitly sexualized yeah. for, like, the experience of travel and whatever. But then you're asleep for the entire experience. So it doesn't, like, it's it's yeah. a flash. Okay, um, but wait. Just, like, as a quick sidebar, I want so badly, so badly to travel in a way where I get to lie down and be put to sleep and wake up in my destination. 
That sounds brilliant. Right? I hate driving. I hate traveling. Right? And it would be, it would make it so that it's as fast as possible because then you wouldn't have like stupid old grandpas being like, my seat is too small and I need more peanuts and complaining all the time. And then the flight attendants <laughs> would, you know, the flight attendants have to do all this bullshit that they normally wouldn't have to do. And yeah, yeah. anyway, that's, yeah, one of the, there are many inventions and changes in this movie that I love. And that is definitely number one. Then there's Zorg's secretary who, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, fulfilling the the stereotypical secretary role that she's there to. With, with another fantastic invention. The thing that she sticks her nails in and it changes the colors. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. So she's sitting there with like this little, it looks almost like, um, like a little, it looks like this. It's very good for a, an audio and podcast. It, yeah. <laughs> it looks like a little pencil sharpener. This little device, yeah. It looks like a pencil sharpener and she sticks her finger in it and it comes out a different uh, nail polish cover. Oh, okay. Wonderful. And then she yeah. sticks the other ones and that's how, right. that's how she does uh, her nails, which is similar to that Chanel thing that Lilu puts up to her eyes right. and it just throws it's makeup on her. It's just, yeah. It's like the, uh, the, the, gun the, the makeup just, gun yeah, that Mars says. Yeah. yeah. That Homer designs, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so far we've got like these women who are just like, you know, they're they're on display, right? Right. Um, but then the, the other ones are Major Iceborg. Right, yeah. Which is just like this ridiculously masculinized woman with these very broad shoulders. She's the one who comes along when... Uh, when Corbin Dallas is supposed to be being recruited for this mission, and he seems like he's like, oh, maybe I'll go in this mission, but then they're like, you'll be her. You'll husband. yeah, you're yeah. This is your wife, and he's like, no way, am I going on this mission? And then it's yuck yuck because well, it's she's... yeah, it's a little more subtle than that. I noticed today. He he like gives her an up and down and is disgusted by it, which sucks. Right. And then, but what's interesting to me is how the the general also looks at her and like sizes her up and is like, what's wrong? Like, why wouldn't you be attracted to this? Like, right. it's not even, it's not even a, a, as if he's like, you know, this is your duty and you you don't actually have to be physically attracted to someone to pretend to be their spouse in order to right. f- fulfill this mission. But he also objectifies her and is like, what's wrong? Right. So it's played off for laughs. And this is something that I was just talking to a friend on Twitter about this the other day, where anytime a woman is seen as a strong woman in movies of any type, but this obviously happens a lot in superhero movies. There's two types of strong women. There's like thin women who are somehow supernaturally strong because they actually, their bodies do not belie any sort of strength whatsoever. Right, like the Charlize Theron type. Exactly. Yeah. Or there are women who are really buff and often fat at the same time. And these women are never feminized. They're never played for like sexy. They're never played for anything except for um, the the weakest member of the group might be attracted to them for some reason right. in this like weird crumb comics type of way. <laughs> <laughs> what's the uh, what's the character from Deadpool? The it's movie played by the uh, the MMA oh yeah fighter. that girl yeah so she is she's like a little more buff and she's sex like sexually attractive right but she's played up like she's not like she would be like oh man it's gross how strong you are even though she's like this objectively attractive woman. Uh, Gino Carano playing, I guess it's Angel Dust in Deadpool, right? Where he's like, "Oh man, that's weird that you're so strong." Yeah, like, so even it's then, like, a, like he's got this like confused boner about it. And even yeah, like even an objectively attractive like, you know, 
conventionally attractive person in that in that case is not even able to be held attractive by the heterosexual cis man you know what i mean because right. because she's strong <laughs> yeah because yeah because less less that make him feel the homo feelings at right. all right <laughs> anyway so i and that's I, in deadpool for christ's sake exactly like, where he the... <laughs> is the homo feelings but yeah so that that part skeeved me out this time and i was i was sad to see it um, but anyway, keep talking about the the women. Right. So then the other the only other women that I noticed in the movie were uh, Corbin's mom on the phone. I was just going to say, just I like, really hope you talk about his mom. It was just like you know, like the shrill nagging mom. Also, she sounds maybe about five years older than him. <laughs> <laughs> like, couldn't you have gotten an older sounding actress to play Corbin? Yeah. Or Mrs. Corbin Dallas. So I mean, at least she's kind of got some agency, and that she speaks up for herself. But I mean, it's in this really like shrill, shrewd, right, like an obnoxious way. Yeah, no, that's just like that's not agency because it's just putting her back down into the complainy, naggy woman role, right? right. Like she doesn't actually get anything, right, from it's, this complaining, right. And I mean, and then there's Lilu, which I think there's there's <clears throat> plenty to talk about. Well, let's talk about Lilu. So first of all, Lilu is an alien. Lilu is not human, right. Alien, I'm not entirely, like, Alien was said in both of those Netflix descriptions, and I'm sure that, you know, Lou Besson said that and stuff like that, but Alien seems like a weird thing to describe her as because lots of people on planet Earth in the year 23-whatever are aliens. Yeah. You know what I mean? And there might be a paper to be written about so-called illegal aliens and the idea of that in sci-fi generally, right? I mean, that's what Men in Black is about, basically. Right. Um, But anyway, so let's call her an alien for the sake of simplicity. Sure. And I will also refer to her as she because everybody in the movie does. Well, there's a big deal made about it and that there's this assumption that it's the fifth element he. and that the savior is going to be a he and yeah. then everybody's like, oh, he's like the the line, he's a she yeah. is said, I think, more than once. Right. But nobody asks Lilu. Like, it, it isn't Lilu being like, yes, I am what you people would refer to in your vernacular and language as she, Right. In Lilu's species, Lilu is singular, so it doesn't actually even matter. But in Lilu's species, there could be 15 different genders that are very visually obvious that all have pronouns that we've never heard of. Or they all might use the same pronoun. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. all of the, the fact that they name her she is exactly the same as my interpretation of the fact that her gets named her in the movie Her. Yeah. And the fact that in Ex Machina, the androids all get formed into women looking androids sure and like interpreted as such these are not actually women lilu is not a woman corbin dallas is in love with someone who he is labeling as being the thing that he wants perfect for corbin dallas perfect is a woman and he allegedly falls in love with her which is something we'll get to later <laughs> but yeah anyway i just want to put it out there that Lilu is not a woman. Right. And I mean, as soon as I think that like the, the whole concept of the fifth element is is absolutely coded that way in that like mankind. And this is the movie saying it. This isn't, I think, me projecting anything like they talk about how mankind destroys life. But then the fifth element and the the line they use is spreads life to the farthest regions, reaches of creation. Like that's giving life like there there's this whole female feminine sort of okay but then why did they refer to it as he before they realized yeah but i i I guess like as that description comes up after it's revealed like the the text like the the movie thinks it's yeah but the movie i think they're playing up the rationalizing it right i think that the 
the the movie is kind of having fun with the idea that oh of course these guys would think that it's a guy but then once it's revealed that it's a woman then it's like okay and now we can actually tell the reasons why like she's actually quite feminine and right okay but let's think of it this way say it was a some something that these people interpreted to be a man instead mm-hmm. okay hell say it was a what we think of as a woman based on visuals but it was iceborg in there instead right Okay. Do you think that what they would be... Okay, those are two different things. I'll go back to the man one (laughs) first. If it was a man, do you think that they would be saying, he brings life to all the corners of the earth, blah, blah, blah? No, they would be... They'd be talking about him as like this champion defender. He would be the savior. Right. Yeah. If it was Iceborg, like, would not be on the table at all. Like, she might be be seen as a mother figure or whatever, but it would not even be a problem because they would not be sexualizing her. Right. So there would be no romanticizing of her. Because you can either be the sexualized figure that Lilu is that has now turned into this, like, peaceful life giver, even though she herself says, I will protect you. She's right. the one who is asserting herself as being the savior of mankind. Or you would have the big, strong man dude who would be the savior of mankind being something that men would want to project their personalities onto. So it's either you want, you're attracted to it or you want to be it. And, like, if it was a man who fell through Corbin's taxi, how would that change things? Yeah, we wouldn't be in the same situation. He wouldn't no. be rescuing her. No, he no, he would be, He, he would, would give this man away, even though, even if the man was crying. Yeah. Yeah. And then even, like, the it's just the language that they use once they discover that Lilu is a, like, big air quotes around it, a woman. You can, we like, we call her a woman in, because of the movie, but the, the, the thing that I just want to lay out is that the reason that these humans have all decided to call this person a woman is because they think of people as being binary, right? Right. This person looks like a woman, so we're going to call them a woman. Right. And as a result, we are coding this person to be a heterosexual woman that is therefore in love with men. Right. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like what if she was like, oh, yeah, no, I am. I am a girl. But no, not into dicks at all. Not into not into cis men whatsoever. I'm only into women or, you know, I'm not even into anybody from this species, right? Or like, yeah, I'm I'm here to fuck, not I'm here to protect you. Exactly. You sons of bitches, stop kissing me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, but I mean, that's, I, that's the only thing. I just want to get that on the table. Like, yeah. we can obviously refer to her as a woman. That's how she's coded in the in the movie, and that's how people refer to her. Yeah. So, but the way that Father Vito, uh, the the Ian Holm character, starts talking about her once she's revealed. You know, at that point, he starts talking about her being mankind's most precious possession. She's right. no longer a savior. She's like this thing that we need to treasure and that we need to hold on to. Yeah. Um, Which he probably wouldn't be doing if this was The Rock playing right. Lilu. <laughs> and then, like, the the really scary... Man, can we remake Fifth Element with The Rock as Lilu? <laughs> yes. Still wearing the thermal bandages. <laughs> yes. Um but then, like, the what's really squiggly to me is the way that the men interact with her. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that this this being has just been brought to life, and you've just seen this person reconstructed, like, bones, then muscles, then all this other stuff. Meanwhile, this, this general, like, once the titties show up, he's like, oh, I'd uh, like to take a few pictures for science so that I can, like, stick this this newborn child into my spank bank. Also, well, because in the 23rd century, um, there is no porn. <laughs> that's Apparently. why, that's why, that's why all the women on the planet dress like that. That's, yeah. that's as close as anybody ever gets to Jean-Paul Gaultier's designs and yeah. 
naked Lilu. They're just like they're so it's so weird how they treat her like right from the get go. That well, it's just but, like, well, she's this naked woman. I've seen some titties. So now when she's like flailing around inside of this tube, like I'm just going to sit here chuckling because I've got half a chub going. Well, but and also anytime she takes off her clothes because it doesn't matter to her because she is not a sexualized being because she is not a female in this dynamic. Um, you know, when she changes, when she's wet or cold or whatever, uh, then the men very comedically turn around because they shouldn't be looking at it. Right. So this is where the movie is camp. The movie, this is not a serious movie, <laughs> right? Like, right. the idea that this old gross man is like, oh, i got to take some pictures for science, right. the research, <laughs> the archives. This is all just, you know, bottom-of-the-barrel jokes. And I have no problem with this as long as you accept that it's bottom-of-the-barrel jokes. If you're listening to this and you've been, you know, you've found some corner of the internet where a bunch of dick nerds take the fifth element way too seriously please don't talk to me about it because (laughs) if this was star wars people would get really mad at someone criticizing that part of star wars right Right. um but no this is like it's meant to be criticized it's meant to be ridiculous it's meant to be stupid there's a lot of insensitive bad parts of this movie but we can take it on the whole as a campy ridiculous knowing what it's doing um and also able to be criticized and also lauded see but i I get that, like, we're supposed to laugh at those guys for being weird and awkward. Right. But I think that because of the relationship between Corbin and Lilu, that it's not not on board with that whole dynamic. What do you mean? Well, I mean, like, like he's allowed to look at her that way, but it's funny when, like, pervy old guys do it. But, when, when does Corbin look at her that way? Well, like, his whole... Everything about them is leading towards this, like this big romantic thing where they kiss at the end like yeah but there's like a specific time where she undresses in front of him and he turns around to not look sure right like it's all it's always treated as like Ooh, like lady you know like it's right but it's always I, treated as a joke i mean that that whole interaction is treated as a joke but i mean like his his interest in her mm-hmm. as a sexual being i think is treated seriously true and that there's a big difference between like Corbin didn't see her get made from nothing, right? Like, in in Corbin's mind, he does not realize, at least I hope, that this is literally a newborn baby. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Like, as far as Corbin is concerned, this is some magical being who is related to religion some way, (laughs) right? And she's amazing. But I have to say that I had forgotten how it ended with that whole... Which, I mean, okay, at the end of the movie... Lilu really wants to be told that she's loved, which is an eye roller for me. And Corbin stutters over it for a while, and Vito actually tells tells him, "Say it, just say that you love her, right. so that we don't all die." <laughs> right. And then he does say it, and I mean, part of that is probably the movie kind of being like, "Isn't it stupid how it's always it always ends up where like the main guy and the main girl are obviously going to fall in love, right? Because this isn't real love, you know. This is." Love worse than Romeo and Juliet type of we've known each other for 17 hours love, right? Because this is literally a newborn person. Right. So it really is just to, like, make sure that the plot ends nicely and that everything gets tied up. I'm giving Corbin a lot more benefit of the doubt when it comes to how much he doesn't know about Lilu and how much he is interpreting as being, like, she's gorgeous and I'm wrapped up in this weird thing and I gotta do shit and I don't know what's going on. I guess. I just, like, because the movie spends so much time in his head and building that narrative like as soon as she falls through the cab 
right? Like she's experiencing like physical trauma from falling through this cab and from being chased and like from just being born. And then the music that plays while that's happening, it go you know, like the, the camera gets all soft and he starts hearing some like, like the music is very much like meat cute at that point. And then there's the whole thing where he, like he wakes her with a kiss, which I mean, it's fine because there's like that, that, yeah, that, that great moment com- where she's like, no, subverted. not, yeah, not when I, uh, what, not without was, my permission. Not without my permission, right? Yeah. Which is amazing. And and point, literally points a gun at him. <laughs> right. And then again, when she, uh, when she gets shot up into the, when she's hiding in his apartment and mm-hmm. she gets shot up and then she gets cleaned. And again, she comes back down and she's, she's dripping wet. She's confused. She's scared. She's cold. And this like sexy jazz starts playing and he's like, oh, ha, ha, ha. Now it's time for me to warm you with a towel. OK, but do you remember what he says? Because he says, isn't it funny that I've only met you twice and both times you've ended up in my arms? Right. So the movie is like beating you over the head with this. The movie is saying that Corbin realizes how ridiculous this is. Corbin realizes that he has now somehow been propelled into this fantasy world where he is the Joe Schmo who is now... You know, he's like the Bruce Campbell type of figure where he's literally gone from being a Joe Schmo blue collar guy to being the hero of a crazy adventure. Right. And the movie is constantly pointing at that and, and coming back to it. I'm not I'm definitely not excusing it for being sexist, disgusting and <laughs> <laughs> like really creepy. But I do think that we have to give it a little more credit when it comes to how sexist and creepy it knows it's being. And I think what we want to talk about is this video that we both watched that just came out recently. Yes. It's called Born Sexy Yesterday. Right. So that's uh, it was created by Josh McIntosh from a series called the Pop Culture Detective Agency, where he talks about the whole trope of in science fiction and of, of fantasy literature of women who are, yeah, if you want to. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I fucking love the idea that he came up with this himself. He came up with the term himself, Born Sexy Yesterday, because it's a perfect term. So... It is women, but again, I'd like to point out that these are people that nine times out of ten are interpreted as the cis hetero man as a woman, as a sexualized object. Right. Okay, so very often these are either some sort of cyborg or some sort of alien or some sort of being that is completely different from the male human and is different in a way that their innocence makes it so that the male human is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to them. A lot of the times they are literally born yesterday, like Lilu in this movie. Another example they use is, well, they, they refer to Ex Machina. Another example they talk about is for the time machine. So it goes back. I, I found it funny that he was like, this goes back to the time machine in 1930, whatever. And I was like, the time machine is from the 1800s. But okay. Right. <laughs> it was a I, book before it was a movie. But right. yeah. I don't know if those characters exist. Yeah, they are. In the, in the, the, um, okay, yeah. What are they called? They're pink. Wishbone does a good time machine. <laughs> <laughs> so in the time machine, it's the Eloy. They're these like childlike, fairy, pixie humanoids who are completely innocent and they're extremely scared of the Morlocks who live underground or something. Can't exactly remember. I think it's underground. They only come sure. out at night. <laughs> and so the traveler meets them and he's really taken with them because these are grown women bodies inhabited by children's minds, as far as he's concerned, because of how innocent and naive they are. Right. And therein lies the disgusting part about Born Sexy Yesterday, where this is a person who is completely reliant, um, naive, ignorant, 
to the point where they need everything. They trust they trust their interlocutor completely, and the interlocutor is always this dude. And just like a child would, a lost child, except that they are also sexually able in a way that a woman would be for them. And so now they have this completely reliant, dependent person who is also a, a sex object for them. And another thing that this video points out is that for most of these examples, one of the only men, if not the only man, that the born sexy yesterday creature knows is our hero. And so even if he is mediocre, even if he right. is like actually crappy, he's going to be completely wonderful to this starry-eyed, naive, ignorant person who is right. completely reliant on them. So some of the examples in that video include characters played by Dan Aykroyd and others who, you know, are just not super exciting. When it comes to Bruce Willis, I would say that, you know, we this he, is, a, this is, is actually, an attractive man. <laughs> well, and, and, and he is actually remarkable. Right? right. Like he's actually, he's somebody who walked away from military life exactly. to try to save his relationship. And then that ended up falling apart anyway. And he gets called back because of his greatness with it. It's not until like the third act that we see how remarkable he is with exactly. his like, military prowess. Yeah. So this isn't the, the stereotypical guy who has never been good with the ladies and can't understand how to talk to them. And then suddenly finds a girl who will give him the time of day because she literally literally knows nobody else on the planet type right. of thing. Um, so there are some differences between The Born Sexy Yesterday in some ways and Lilu's Born Sexy Yesterday, especially because she is incredibly wise. And, you know, she is she was around since the dawn of time. And when she goes in uh, my favorite scene, which is when she's looking on the Internet to read up on what's happened for the last 5000 years. Um, and then she goes up to the special machine where she puts in a bowl and says what she wants and the food comes out and she's eaten like three chickens right. so far. <laughs> yeah, so lovely. What I don't like about that is that, you know, she's reading about all this. She learns about martial arts and she really likes that. And then later on in the movie, there's this big poignant moment where she learns about war as if war, you know, has never existed before however many years. Or as if in that 5,000 years that she was covering, she wouldn't have heard about war before. And I understand she's learning about modern war as in the way that we know it in the 20th century. Right. Um, and about like what these particular humans that she's chosen to defend are willing to do to each other. And like, Jesus Christ, is this really worth protecting? For sure. And again, this is it's a ham-fisted, or I should say a heavy-handed way for Luc Besson to be like, humanity in the 20th century you know what i mean yeah. like this is we're talking 1997 this is the end of the 20th century this is uh, people are we're it, it wouldn't make sense for her to like look at some fictional war that supersedes both world war one and world war two right in that happened in 2143 or something right like that's not gonna be helpful for the narrative right. it's it's a very pathos moment that in a, in a movie that is otherwise too campy to be that pathos i think if that makes sense i know that they can coexist but i don't know that always that that part always kind of stuck out to me as too too convenient for the narrative of that if that's uh if you'll allow me to have that one criticism of it well and especially because like the the thing that solves that because that like basically sends her into a coma right. right where she just like well i mean no i guess it's actually her getting shot a bunch of times but like the fact that her angst with humanity is solved 
with the power of Bruce Willis's love, right? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. yeah, that makes up for World War II and yeah. the dropping of two atomic bombs and and, the and yeah. So what does that mean? So is that really that Lilu is in love with Bruce Willis and is just playing kind of like you know, well, I won't do it unless you tell me, right? Like, does she does she know that he's interested and in just is being manipulative? Like, what is or he, or is she actually unaware? But needs this information in order to be able to save the world. Like, what's what is that? Well, and that's where I don't give the movie credit, right? Because like she's she's laying there, like all draped out, and just like I don't know, experiencing some kind of crisis where like physically she's able to get up and do what she needs to do, but she's just like, oh, I don't even care anymore. Yeah. But then like Bruce Willis swoops in and is like, I love you. Yeah. And then boom, the world is worth saving. And it doesn't make sense because. she would have she's just a conduit at that point right like she she doesn't have to have her heart in it to do it right like she just has to be in that in that circle right so that's definitely one of those parts where remember this is a silly movie (laughs) this is a love story space opera yeah bullshit movie and we can't try and find too much depth here seriously i no. like it's just i like i find myself like disappointed at the end that like that's that's the end of this movie is them like having this big sweeping romantic moment when like for sure she's not even capable of like understanding what what this is and like what it means for him and right but this is also just a silly movie right like we we have to remember that this is this is a movie that is trying to be funny and silly and you know there's this awesome cool invention where you open your window and a like flying Chinese food cart comes to you, right? Like this is a cool, weird movie. Yeah. And for it to have a silly 1960s, 1970s romance story to it makes perfect sense to me. Could it have been way cooler? Yeah, of course. In 1997, probably not. (laughs) By Luc Besson, probably not. Considering (laughs) Luc Besson's other like really famous movie is basically a love story between a 12-year-old and Jean Reno. (laughs) I just think that like... And I get a lot of flack for this because I I talk a lot of shit about things that I like and don't like. And people tend to interpret me talking shit about stuff I like as me not liking it. And you can. You can definitely definitely point out – that's what my whole degree is about, is pointing out – you know, is criticizing art that I love or that I don't love. And this is something that I really enjoy and I'm entertained by it. I can definitely point out all its flaws, but I can also say – you know, it's not trying to reinvent the wheel. It's not trying to do something more than this. I will say that to compare it to another movie that I've talked about with you, I had a lot of criticism for a girl with a dragon tattoo and for its portrayal of the cool girl trope. My criticism comes from that because there's nothing silly about girl with a dragon tattoo. There's nothing silly about that character or what happens to her. And as a result, when things fall short in, you know, my estimation about how she is treated or like just as a character, how she is treated by the script, that's where I'm a lot more critical. I hold that movie to higher standards about how to treat its characters and how to portray women in a certain way than I do the movie where employees of McDonald's dress like Ronald McDonald. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's context. For sure. I will say, though, that I don't actually have a huge problem with the Jean-Paul Gaultier fashion that everybody's wearing and how everything is sexualized. My reason for that is because 
most of the men are also dressed in a really sexy way, if you notice. Because everybody's by Jean-Paul Gaultier. I don't know if you knew this, but okay. the, all of the costumes are, are by this huge, big French designer. And that's why they're so similar, but they're also very iconic, right? Like, everybody knows Lilou's outfit, her, yeah. her, her two main outfits. Um and, like, Bruce Willis's outfit is hot, too. Like, he's wearing, like, this, like, undershirt that has these cool cutouts at the back, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is fashion forward. Sure. 20, 23rd century, whatever. And then Ruby. <laughs> I mean, Ruby is a, like, very sexily dressed, high fashion character. So it's not just, like, that women are being sexualized. It's that fashion is an important thing in the 23rd century. And when you look at flight attendants' uniforms in 1960, you can see that that's you know very similar so if we can think about like the 1960s being transported to the year 23 whatever i think we see where that fashion pickup comes right the men are sexy the women are sexy i mean look at zorg right like zorg is high fashion he's got yeah. that crazy like <laughs> collar he's got that crazy haircut he's got the dome thing that right that he also makes everybody wear. else yeah everybody else wears which I only found, like, I only saw this time that he, like, his entourage all wear these yeah, domes. They all yeah, have plastic domes on their heads. Yeah. No, yeah, like this is this is important stuff, and I mean the same thing is in any kind of futuristic sci-fi movie, right? Like, there was crazy fashion in her as well. Mm-hmm. You know, fashion is an important thing in the future, but like, same with Star Wars. Star Wars is going to have weird fashion. This is just the thing that you have to have when you're having a movie in the future, for it to be sexualized. I think that's a little bit... I'm not trying to say that they're not sexy, because they are. These are attractive women. But I don't think they're sexy in the way that, like, other women might be when you compare these to fashion models. Do you know what I mean? These are all... They look very... They're all tall, they're all thin, and they're all wearing fashion. Okay? You you said that they have cleavage. They don't actually have cleavage. <laughs> there are no real breasts on well, anybody have, yeah. in this movie. <laughs> I, I should say like low low cut, deep deep V's going right. on. Yeah, right. But this is this is high fashion. Everybody okay. everybody in this on this planet is except for Iceborg is high couture. Okay, we're not talking about like porn star type bodies, right? Squeezed into mini skirts. And there's a difference between sexualizing in like a porn star body and sexualizing a high fashion body in to the point where I almost see a high fashion body as being desexualized and being more objectified in an artistic way than in a sexual way. I guess I'm also, I mean, like going back to the McDonald's one, I'm mm-hmm. just like seeing these, like these police officers who are covered from head to toe, including these, like these like skin caps over like their whole heads. And they're sitting there like grunting and like moving around in their cars being all like, they're gross. And meanwhile, there's this exposed, Largely exposed, like, a lot of skin showing at this, from this woman who's handing them their food. For sure. That is, like, sexual in a way that, you know, is more than the police officers. But it is also fashion. The fact that they all have the same haircut, like, they all have the same wigs on, fashion. But I also really like how, like, you said that the secretary is really stereotypical because she's just, like, sitting there doing her nails and everything like that. Her job seems pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> she's, like, working for this horrible person and she doesn't actually get treated like all the other people do that we see anyway there's another instance where the woman who is working um taking people's tickets is behind this wall of glass and so when like three or four imposters come up trying to pretend to be dallas corbin um she or corbin dallas she can just say okay bye and literally like go down into this tube while a mechanical police officer grabs that guy these are 
women who, even if they are sexualized as objects, are not objectified in a way that is like dangerous or scary for them. And that's why when Ruby and the flight attendant have sex, it's even cooler because Ruby's doing all the work (laughs) to this woman who, you know, I I did find it a little because she's like trying to, she's resisting and stuff like that. And she does outright say like, no, stop a couple of times, which I'm going to chalk up to, you know, the movie thinking that this is, it's obvious that she doesn't actually want him to stop. But like, you know, if I was writing a movie today, I wouldn't include that. I think that that's not super fun. Um, as far as, you know, consent culture goes, especially because we have that great scene earlier where Lilu says, not without my yeah. permission. But yeah, the idea that these women seem to be in much more charge. They literally put their clients to sleep so that they don't have to deal with their shit because flight attendants get a whole lot of hell of a lot of shit from clients. Uh, and then she gets to have sex with this celebrity who everybody wants and she doesn't do anything. He's he's downstairs the whole time. Yeah. So these are these like little things that I think when we add them all together can at least defend some of what looks to be hypersexualized a hypersexualized society in the future. Yeah, fair enough. Um, do you know the whole thing with with Ruby Rod and like the original plan for him? How and it was going to be Prince? Yeah, apparently it was going to be Prince. Yeah, and then Chris Tucker was cast, and they're like, "Do Prince." Yeah, and he was like, uh, "Okay," because it was like his first big movie. <laughs> right. So. Remember, I told you that this is also my friend Joel's favorite movie. And when uh, Chris Tucker came on and I was laughing at some of the stuff he was saying, he paused the movie and he's like, you're not like, I hate Chris Tucker as Ruby Rod. He's the only thing I hate in this movie. And I hate you for finding it funny. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't I was immediately supposed to hate him. So how do you feel about Ruby Rod? What do you what do you think about him? I mean, I'm I'm fine. Yeah. With it, I guess. I mean, like it. It seems to do the job. I mean, it's like a some delicious combination of an AM radio host and a late night shock jockey, which is perfect because he's on at like 5 p.m. It right. just kind of like averages them out <laughs> where he's just like, I'm going to be filthy and campy and yeah, out there. Yeah. So I, mean, I, feel, I didn't have any problem with it. How do you feel about because he does come across very effeminate or very coded as gay? Yeah. But then is not gay because we see him extremely happy to be with this woman. It seems like he's almost like, well, I'm Ruby Rod, so I'm going to be having sex right now. Right. But like, he doesn't seem to be taking too much pleasure in it. He's just kind of like barking at her like, this is what's happening now. Like, this is the next step of me sexing you. I don't know. I didn't I didn't take it like that because I, I thought it was really funny where he, he said something like, oh, no, like this is... You know, the, this is the first time it's mean, meant something or something like that, right? Right, like but it, like, seemed, it sounded so tired when he said it. Like, of course, like He's, right. like, said that line so many times before. Yeah. Right, because he's had sex with so many women yeah. before. See, because if, if it had been where he was coded as effeminate and coded as gay and then didn't want to get with women, but women were all over him, but he re- re- rebuked them, rebuffed them, rebuked them. He also rebuked them while he rebuffed them. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then, you know, maybe had, like, a unrequited love for Corbin, say, or something like that, that would be shitty. Because then that would be, this would be like a coded gay closeted character and that's not cool. But he's just effeminate and weird. Yeah. And extremely outrageous, but then is also at least bisexual, if not heterosexual. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, you know, if you are gay and you find this offensive, 
I totally understand how you could. <laughs> but this is just another little thing where the fact that he does have sex with women undermines that to an extent. Do you know what I mean? So like a, a comparison could be Waylon Smithers in The Simpsons, where he is never actually allowed to talk about how he's gay and be out and proud. I'm talking about seasons one to nine because that's all that exists in my mind. So I don't right. know if he's come out of the closet completely since then. It hasn't happened in my mind. And anytime that he is supposed to be like romantically involved with a woman, it's played off for laughs. Right. And that's why that's where it's like homophobic because it's not he's not able to be himself, but he's also not coded as heterosexual. Yeah. And in this one, just because Ruby is effeminate doesn't mean that he is necessarily gay, which means that it's not necessarily saying that gay is a bad thing or a joke. That's where I, I'm feeling for my feelings for Ruby come from, which is why I still think that he's great yeah. <laughs> and outrageous and funny and such a good foil to all of the extremely serious things that happened in the second half of the movie in the like final act. Yeah, I guess it, that's that's one of kind of the the, the cool depictions of the future which i guess is also like a bit of a throwback as well i mean like it's based on prince right the idea of like the effeminate rock star who's actually fucking every woman in the arena right right? do you find him annoying though like do you find him outrageous to the point of or sorry annoying to the point of of uh not being able to stomach him as a character no not at all i think he fits he fits in the world right like he there's nothing in this world that's subtle. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's a really good way to put it, that there's nothing subtle in this world. I did want to just really quickly talk about how cute um, the interactions with his cat are. Corbin's cat. I just think that that's the cutest thing ever. It, if it wasn't in the movie, you wouldn't miss it. But the yeah. fact that it's there is just such a nice little layer of character development for Corbin. And the cat is just friggin' adorable, how it's yeah. cross-eyed. <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. I mean, it it adds to him being this... He actually has, you know, some depth, and he can love, and he can, you know... Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it gives him this kind of, like, uh, this is a man with love to give. He just has no one to give it to. He has a cat sort to give it to. <laughs> right, but I mean, the cat's definitely played up as, like, a placeholder, because, like, he'll be like, oh, sorry, cat, I forgot to feed you, and then he'll, like, lay on the bed and be like, oh, the perfect woman just fell into my life, right. and... Like, I wish there was a woman in my life, and then one literally falls into his lap or yeah. his backseat lap. Yeah. But then, and then also the fact that he talks to his mom seems kind of regularly, even if it's a strained relationship. These are all just like these little tidbits about Corbin Dallas that are, in my mind, you know, we didn't get this stuff about what's his face in Ex Machina. We don't have this type of sympathy right. for that guy. Can't remember his name. Doesn't matter because he does not matter in that movie. <laughs> yeah, I think there was, there was one thing that uh, Naomi wanted to make sure that we didn't fail to address in, in talking about this movie, and that was the production design and just, like, how incredible this movie looks. Oh, yeah. And and also that it was, like, based on two comic artists, wasn't it? Yes. She said? Yeah, so there were um, comic book artists. Uh, but I read on IMDb that, like... It was like one of them sued or something. Yeah. So this is really this is really fascinating because <laughs> my understanding of how this went is that apparently Luc Besson was largely inspired by the work of these two uh, bande dessinée artists, um, which I recently found out is just like abbreviated BD when you're talking in France hmm. because they're just like it's such a big part of the culture that they just like haven't understood like abbreviation. Oh, for that's it. cool. 
so I mean like a, a big part of the whole appeal of this movie is how it looks like this is a really unique looking movie even though it, it seems like it's maybe sort of borrowing from Star Wars and Blade Runner in some shots it's still like this is a really unique world that I really you're liked, living in. I read about how the director really wanted it to be um, visually bright because most sci-fi movies are dark and gloomy and gritty looking he wanted this one to be technicolor exploding off of the screen bright yeah. colors um, which I appreciate. It kind of reminds me of Super Troopers in that way sometimes. <laughs> you know, Super Troopers is a very bright movie. Like, yeah. it's it's sci-fi, but it's very light. Um, so the two uh, comic writers were uh, Jean Giraud, also known as Mobius, and Jean-Claude Mézières, who I guess are, like, they're old friends. There's this, uh, this is, like, the one time that I can think of that I really wish the Netflix had bonus features mm-hmm. um, because there's this uh, this 18-minute, short doc that they do where they talk about like the whole experience of working on this movie together. Oh, nice. Called The Visual Element, which ah, is a pretty cute name, ah. uh, which is available on YouTube. I'll probably embed it if uh, if I don't feel too weird about it not being the official <laughs> way of distribution for it. But they talk about how like, um, I guess Besson was kind of like, I like what you do, so I want you to work on production design for this. But then there was this weird lawsuit that <laughs> happened as well where... Um, the editor for a comic that Mobius wrote called Lankal or The Inkle, Inkal, I don't know how you pronounce it, um, where they were like, oh, The Fifth Element, the movie that you're making is actually quite similar to this comic that Mobius drew. So I guess the editor sued oh, fuck. Luc Besson. Oh, it's like one of those like self-plagiarism weirdy things. Well, yeah, it's this weird thing that happened where, um, according to the person who actually like initiated the lawsuit, he was like, the main reason that we lost the lawsuit was because Mobius then went on and worked on this movie. Oh, wow. And like undermined the, like, yeah. the integrity of this lawsuit. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, that makes me feel better about it then, because I, I thought that it was Mobius who didn't want to... No, he worked on it. Right, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, I mean, they worked on this whole production design, and this short is, or this documentary is, it's not terribly eye-opening, but you get to see some of the sketches that led to, like, like a year was spent working on designing the whole look yeah. of this thing before anything ever happened. And they show, like, different designs for, like, what the diva could have possibly looked like yeah. and how they eventually landed on the design that they did and how the uh, the cruise ship on Flossed in Paradise, how, like, it's intended to look like it could be aquatic but it's also meant to look like a space vessel at the same time. Nice. Like, it's really fascinating to see the behind the scenes. And again, like, I wish that there was a, that Netflix sometimes had that sort of thing. I like when they have, like, trailers and stuff for their original content and, like, previews. But it's just like, you know, like, occasionally, like, having a, yeah, like, having a behind the scenes documentary would be pretty dope. That reminds me, though, that the gun that Zorg is going to sell to the Warriors is just the coolest gun ever. Yeah, it's like the, the whole look of the thing. Like it seems, and it's like, so light. I love how I love when he throws it at him. Yeah. That's my favorite. Like it seems like they're the whole movie is constantly like both embracing and satirizing sci-fi at the same time. Exactly. Like, man, isn't sci-fi ridiculous? Exactly. But look how cool we can make it. Which is what sci-fi should be. <laughs> the, like sci-fi is supposed to be human interactions with ridiculous made-up shit. Okay, like we're not talking about like past historical human interactions. We're talking about made up future shit. And that's and that's why I am so forgiving about how cheesy the story is when they fall in love at the end, because that's all sci fi is, is it's that same love story of what happens when humans interact, but launched into the future and look at all this cool shit we have. Right. Was there anything else that you wanted to add? Well, let's talk about the diva. Okay. Go ahead and talk about the diva. Also, did you read about how Luke? 
Besson was married to that or was in a relationship, like a five-year relationship with that woman, and then during production broke up with her and started dating Mila Jovovich. Right, after Jovovich. making their like secret language together. And yeah, I, like, don't, I don't love that. Are you kidding me? How did you finish the movie? <laughs> By finishing the Divas shots first. I guess so. Or like in my mind, what I on the bus ride over here, I was convincing myself that it was a mutual parting and that he just happened to, you know, fall in love with M- Mila at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Like like the woman who plays the diva was equally excited to finish this relationship <laughs> <laughs> because if she was left high and dry, oh my god, I can't even imagine. But it feels so weird to like in- keep that footage in and uh, yeah. Exactly. No, it had to have been it had to have been a mutual decision. Holy shit. Anyway, um that scene is just ridiculous, right? Like it's unreal every time i listen to it i know going in what it's gonna be and i'm still like holy shit and apparently bruce willis had never heard it before and all his reactions are are genuine yeah Yeah. which i just love i have this like really soft spot spot in my heart for bruce willis and i think you probably know that from our talk about pulp fiction he was my favorite in that movie right i don't know just like something about his face is so so authentic Mm -hmm. and even when he's this buff handsome guy he comes across much more down to earth in all of these roles where he's supposed to be buffing, you know, the heroic guy. And the fact that those were his genuine reactions just melts my heart because you can really, even if it wasn't his genuine reactions, he's an amazing actor. (laughs) I remember hearing recently, uh, and then we can come back to the the diva scene, but like that apparently he said to Chris Tucker at one point on set that like, well, kid, like I know this is your first big job, but enjoy it because this movie's a career killer. Really? Yeah. But Aww. I've also heard that he like agreed to do the movie within 10 minutes of interviewing for it. So I don't I don't huh. know where the truth is in that. But I believe both. And I feel like they could both be true at the yeah. same time. Yeah. It would have been a career killer for him, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but because he, you know, as I said, he did not play the super flattering character. Yeah. But that reminds me of like Alec Guinness and how much he hated Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, the diva scene is really cool. Um, like you said, like, and it's, I think that that gives credence to your your look at this is like okay it's it's high culture presented in a poppy way because it's this like operatic performance that then gets this like rock beat underneath it right and she does those really stupid dance moves yeah (laughs) oh yeah and i love the yeah the juxtaposition between that going on and you see you seeing the the fight and the other right and i mean it's it's people doing what they were born to do like people at like the apex of of what they're capable of like side by side these two female characters kind of at their best yeah that's cool yeah i really love when you first see the diva and she's got the big shawl on her face Mm -hmm. and the She's her presence is so commanding that the guy literally cannot speak and says just as tall <laughs> because she's so much taller than he is. <laughs> and I love her entourage and how respectful they all of are of her. And yeah, it's just a really cool character and a really sad end to her character. Yeah. I, I remember the first time I saw it, I was really surprised that she died like that. Um, yeah, and then she like she gets disemboweled by our right. protagonist, like well, pulling these stones out of her gut. And... Exactly. So she she know she must have known that she was going to die, right? Like that yeah. she would have to die, even if it hadn't been like that. She would. That was the last performance she was ever going to do. Yeah. Um, which makes it even cooler. Yeah, and it's. I mean, she just embodies the whole idea that like this movie is both ridiculous and exquisite at the same time because it's like it's this 
really ambitious costume that when you look at certain parts of her body looks fake as shit. Right. Where it's just like, I can see this costume creasing where yeah. it's supposed to be her skin, but also like you went for it and like, I've got to give you props for that. Like it does both. It straddles yeah. this line. It's also like kind of strange how similar it is to the blue aliens in Star Wars in the cantina or maybe it's in um, the green ones with like the long yeah exactly horns out of are they heads? green okay yeah. yeah like the women they're they're, yeah. they're women looking uh, aliens who are like meant to be sexy but it's it's very it's very visually similar which I always thought was kind of a weird like I really think that this, this movie knows that it's spoofing sci-fi yeah on a way that we have to see more as satire than as poor creativity yeah <laughs> one little note from the uh, the visual element short is uh, just that Mobius, maybe it's just the translation, but he seems like kind of a dick. I believe it. In that there's some times where he was like, yeah, so generally like, you know, Luke knew to listen to me. And then one time he insisted on doing this one vision of something, but it was okay because he based it on a car- on a comic that I drew. So that made it fine. Oh <laughs> my gosh. Like, Fuck you. Wow. <laughs> but it ends up looking exquisite, so I can't really be mad. He's the diva. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting short. It's not like eye-opening or anything but yeah it's, it's pretty cool nice yeah and i mean that that whole sequence also i mean this movie could i mean like in netflix so like it's an action adventure but it's not until the third act yeah. like there's a couple like actiony sort of things where like uh lilu like jumps into the cab and whatever but like for the most part it's not like an adrenaline no. rush like it's more about really immersing yourself in this world. Yeah. And then in the third act, it's like, now we're going to blow a bunch of stuff up and yeah. it's going to be super sweet. I guess the explosion in Oh, yeah, that it's the biggest explosion like that's the ever... Biggest in, like indoor explosion and almost like caused all sorts of safety hazards. Yeah. Yeah, These those are those types of things that, you know, are so kind of eye-rolly to me in the sense that it doesn't actually impress me that much when things like that happen because I'm like I wouldn't have noticed either way if you had done if you had done a smaller explosion it wouldn't have been like hmm that explosion really should have been a lot bigger yeah but then I think about it kind of being the creators pushing the envelope for sci-fi and sci-fi is about weird costumes and effects more than it is maybe about a good script but I will say that I think that the script is good. It's better than the Star Wars script. Fight me. I'll fight anybody on that. Uh, a lot of it, I think, was ad-libbed, um, specifically by Bruce Willis. I guess a lot of the like one-liners he came up with by himself. Yeah, like the, uh, I only speak two languages, English and bad English. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, chalk that up to those actors and not not the writers. But, but yeah, did you read the part on in the trivia that the reason that Jovovich was so good at this language is because they actually like came up with this language because she's multilingual right and you know she has a grasp of so many other languages four different languages already so she was like yeah whatever yeah so they came up with like a hundred words or something and actually you know spoke in it in front of the other people well yeah apparently this was like the language that her and luke besson spoke in yeah in front of the rest of the yeah exactly hopefully not in front of the diva yeah no (laughs) mila wouldn't do that um but anyway, I love those types of little things because Mila is like, in my mind, not a lot of people know her from, you know, other than Fifth Element or Resident Evil, right? These are both movies that people, the first thing that they say about her is probably not she is a fantastic actress or that, you know, she has a lot of talent when it comes to owning a character. And I think that she's sold short on that 
in that regard. Mm-hmm. And it really sucks because one of the one of the tropes of the born sexy yesterday is often that they can't communicate or have to learn how to communicate. And that definitely happens in this. Just like she she does speak her language fine and she can communicate to the priest. But it's almost like a newborn baby learning how to speak English. And so her language is very adapted to how she's going to be speaking with the primary people in her life, which is Corbin Dallas. But those types of roles are not necessarily sexist if the actress pulls it off in a way that makes it seem or makes it more, makes it appear a way that is someone claiming agency. Because what I think is really important to remember when, especially nowadays, when on Twitter you can get into really huge arguments with people over what is feminist and what is not, I think it's important to remember that anyone is not born understanding how to oppress or how to fight against oppression, right? So when Born Sexy Yesterday, in this case, Lilu comes into this planet, she is treated a different way because people are assuming that she is a woman. And because of that, she has to react. And that's where agency is formed or it's not formed. And agency would be formed in a normal situation, in an actual day-to-day situation. And it is formed for Lilo. She does form agency. She already had agency from her actual, you know, thousands of years of existence before she went to sleep and then woke up. She knows that she's the savior. She knows that she's going to protect Corman. That's what she tells him. Well, yeah, I mean, she did it before, right? Isn't the exactly. whole idea like she she, comes she's back living every a cyclical years or whatever. life? Yeah, yeah. Um, or more than that. But it's our represent or it's our interpretation of her that strips her of agency. So that's why I think it's it's not it's not wise on our part to just chalk her up to being like really pretty and therefore no agency, or can't speak English, therefore no agency. You know what I mean? Because think about what you're saying about people in real life. Immigrants don't have agency as a result just because they don't speak English? No, that's not true. Obviously, they have rich backgrounds from their own lives that mm-hmm. we just can't communicate with them. Yeah, she's. I, I feel like she's a character who has agency despite what the other characters and the, the tropes of the genre would seem to be putting on her. Exactly. And there's there's one very cool little moment where it's kind of like the, the Eva or Ava? Ava, Eva from Ex Machina? Mm-hmm. I forget Ava, which one. I think, yeah. Where you kind of realize that like, oh, okay, you know, some of this is learned. Some of this is manipulation. Yes. Because the reason she starts crying in the back of the cab is because she looks and she sees the ad for like, it's like orphan children and it says help and there's a picture of a kid crying. So then she looks up and she like starts crying and she goes, help? Yeah. And like she puts this out as this like rescue me please figuring that like oh this is something that people are supposed to emotionally respond to yeah and it works and she kind of realizes like great okay well this is the way that i'm gonna have to navigate this world exactly because born sexy yesterday does not necessarily mean born stupid yesterday right like these are creatures who are born yesterday but they are also extremely intelligent like ava is way more intelligent than anybody else on the planet because you know she can actually hold all of the intelligence that we have in her head at one time and i'm seeing lilo as a very similar character she is beyond time right like she can see all of time at all times and all that type of interesting sci-fi scapegoaty stuff that yeah it's very convenient right and, and where the the born sexy yesterday thing talks about they're like inherently having like a naive woman is not a problem mm-hmm. 
until there's the power issues of people being like, wait a minute, that's like a baby with tits. Right. I'm going to put my dick in it. Yeah, exactly. So, like, what do you think about that when it comes to this movie? I mean, I'm more forgiving after talking to you about it. Right. But, I mean, that's definitely the, the vibe that I got from it. Yeah. I mean, I think... she's, she's the fact that she points the gun at his head and says, not without my permission, and then she later gives him permission. Like, she's not as coerced Mm -hmm. as some of the other characters that they outline in the video. Yeah, because the fact that she even knows that she would be able to give permission to something like that, Mm -hmm. that means that a kiss isn't new to her. In that video, they talk a lot about the whole, what is kiss? That (laughs) all these idiot women, (laughs) they're not idiots in any actual sense of the word, but they're idiots because they're ignorant. Yeah. Right, but and again, like the troubling thing with those isn't necessarily that they feel that way. It's that the guys are like, well, yeah, this is like, it's good for your health for me to put my mouth on your yeah, mouth. Gross. And they're like, ew, okay. But like, and then, so like, here's the thing is that, like, is Corbin taking advantage of Lilo? I don't think. Because <laughs> that's, that's what it is, right? So you're saying that, or not you're saying, but the, the video and how you summarized it is that it says, um, it's not inherently bad for these women to be innocent or naive, but once someone takes advantage of them in a way that, mimics how an adult could use their power over a child um that's when it's problematic right is that what you're that's what you're seeing the video is saying yeah and i guess it's not quite that but i think it's still kind of gross how he's like turned on when she's vulnerable right and everybody is okay everybody else in the movie is really gross i completely (laughs) give you that the the general at the beginning yeah like i mean he is gross like looking at him is gross he's <laughs> he's supposed to be gross um the 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 scientist who builds her and just keeps saying perfect i think is interesting because he doesn't seem to be sexualizing her he seems to be objectifying her in a way that is you know you are my my key to scientific fame or whatever right. which echoes the archaeologist at the very beginning of the movie who is not super interested in the actual teleological ramifications of what he's finding but is super stoked about being famous from finding this yeah well and the guy is so i mean his the horror of him is just like how there's a creature that everybody else is identifying as human like suffering in front of him and he's just like he's so excited yeah about everything that's happened and he's just like he's got that scientific distance yeah exactly that's gross gross um but we know that Corbin Dallas had a wife who left him. Presumably because of his military career. That's what he and implies. Him being, him being married to the job. Yeah. Right. So is he excited by the idea of this woman being vulnerable to the point of being dependent on him? Because that's kind of what I'm getting from the Be Born Sexy Yesterday. All of these women are dependent and therefore won't stray because well, yeah, it's they more... don't know any better and can't. Yeah. I mean, like it's. It's kind of there because it's not necessarily about like them not straying. It's about them not knowing any better and right. it being like, I am by default the best guy for you because I'm the only guy for you. Right. And I'm the one who's teaching you like what a man should be. Right. So, I mean, like he's not as bad as other characters, but I think it's also like my l- last wife left me. My mother's a nagging shrew. You're something different. Right. So like the innocence is exotic to him and he's he's happy to fulfill this like hero role right but not quite to the like exploitative 
like we've said the word gross, but it's perfect, like not yeah. quite as grossly as the other people in the other ones where they're... I think that he knows that too. And that's why he's so hesitant to say that he loves her at the end. Because first of all, it's the movie pointing, poking fun at the genre and how everything needs to be tied up in a nice little package and that they're happily ever after afterwards. But I think he knows that they're not going to be happily ever after afterwards. This is a person or a, a being who is akin to a god, right? Like she's not going to want to hang around South Brooklyn in your crappy apartments. Yeah. Like this is <laughs> this is not going anywhere. And, you know, they will not have fifth element half children later or anything like that. This is not the Two same. Two and a half elements, yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. That's terrible. Wow, good for you. <laughs> Two and a half. Oh no. Um but yeah, this isn't the same as some of these movies where you know, like Splash or whatever, where yeah. This is someone who has fallen in love with this woman as an object, and the woman has then fallen in love in return out of a sense of adoration about not knowing any better or not knowing anything different. Lilu does know different. She knows everything in the history of the world. And that's why she's much more similar to Ava, who leaves <laughs> at the end of the movie right. and doesn't stick around with her schmuck love interest. I didn't feel like he was in in a vulnerable position. I felt like he was in a contrived vulnerable position where it was like, oh, no, we're making a man say I love you. Ew. Really? Like, that's that's how I saw it. That he was just like, he was this like, the no, man, I The can't. man who says hi, sweetie, to his cat and then like has all these jokes with Vin Diesel about how much he loves his cat and everything like that? No, I don't think so. I think we've been like conditioned up to this point to think of him as this quite Lothario type of romantic romanticizing person and that that's not a big deal in this universe nobody is to my knowledge made fun of for being sensitive or effeminate or romantic or anything right. like that right? right i don't know i don't they'll, I, they'll give you a radio show for it i do not have the energy to be a ruby type of radio show yeah. host oh my god that sounds exactly that's what i was thinking the entire time i was watching that video about like the born sexy yesterday i was like that sounds exhausting <laughs> like i don't have the time for that like yeah. to fuck like i don't have the biggest ego in the world actually that was really interesting I, I really liked in that video where they flip it and they talk about how you know it isn't unheard of for it to be the other way around where a woman meets a born sexy yesterday man who has no idea what's going on and is but but they frame it as now this woman is basically taking care of a giant baby yeah she's never attracted to him like a, a peer she's always she might think that he's handsome and probably does because they usually are but has to like literally teach him how to eat and yeah. doesn't doesn't find it cute finds yeah. it annoying and because of yeah. being conditioned to being like in a mother role the the response that I had to that, I mean, aside from like, yes, this is so true, was just like my fragile masculinity went off a bit. And I was like, <laughs> well, yeah, that's why you'd want uh, like a an easygoing woman because you don't want to feel like this big dum-dum who like women have to take care of. And like you don't want to feel like you have a mother, right? You wanna, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we'll wrap this up the same way that we always do. I uh, want to ask you for your rating and your MVP for the movie. Before that, I do want to ask you, though, do you, did you check how much of a, a match this movie is? I'm, I'm fascinated by matching now because I need a, to have some kind of, like, data. <laughs> it said um, it was an 85% match. 85? Okay, mine was 84. Nice. So there we go. So, I mean, yeah, it thought that we would like them. Yeah, and it was uh, right. So uh, thumbs up or thumbs down, and then who's your MVP from the movie? Thumbs up. I like this movie quite a lot. <laughs> it's it's very strange not having the whole grayscale of 
five mm-hmm. stars to work I've, with. I've embraced it though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's I'm, much I'm easier. Past it. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Um, and then my MVP is Mila. Uh, I mean, she's amazing, and the fact that she evokes so much emotion, and as you said, different types of manipulation or different types of actual sincere sincerity while half talking in a different language. Yeah, no, she's just fantastic. I mean, Bruce Willis is also great. But yeah, Mila's my my MVP. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to copy you exactly. Thumbs up and uh, Mila Jovovich. Because, I mean, like, it's a physical role. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated role in terms of, like, dialects and everything. I mean, I don't she... think I actually ever finished my thought that Mila deserves a lot more credit <laughs> yeah. in the cinematic world. Because like you said definitely a physical role she like this is an action movie as far as Mila is concerned so that I mean embracing the dialects like being able to emote with other dialects that aren't even real and making it seem authentic and genuine and I mean there are some times where she's just like she's cute yeah uh, we're like and they're both she's cute, supposed though. to be like both, she, both of them together are really cute yeah I mean she's cute and kick-ass and empathic like she's or empathetic like she she runs the suite mm-hmm. and this movie would not be anywhere near what it is without her. But that's completely true. But I also have to underscore again that Bruce Willis is also really cute in this movie. And if <laughs> it true. was if it was someone else, it probably wouldn't come across as cute. So for instance, when they're in the when they first meet and they're in the cab and he's just kind of marveling at this whole situation and kind of giggling at what's going on it's adorable like he doesn't come across as condescending he comes across as like what the hell is happening like this is such a strange (laughs) event right and if he was you know played by someone else it would come across as condescending and i think that that would totally change this whole my whole interpretation about this born sexy yesterday for this i see them as um not as him being the like big heroic person who will take care of her I see her as being much more capable than he is, yeah. but also that he is not a bumbling doofus either. Yeah, he's just well. They say they say in the video that the uh, the way to pull off a born sexy yesterday is to have them grow together. Together, yeah. So so you do get that feeling that they're, I would say they're so. Yeah, kind of coming together even if they're eventually not going to end up that way. Yeah, I would say that they're growing together, and and whether like they're growing at the same time is what I mean by yeah. growing together. Um, and the fact that they make the fact that Bruce Willis's character is portrayed as being cute and silly and loves his cat and all this other stuff is extremely important to my ability to accept this as not being a patriarchal, gross, sexist relationship. Right. Okay, cool. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for for doing another one of these and for, for coming on. Is there anything that you want to tell the world about before we sign off? Um, yeah, I've got a new piece on our blog um it's about master of none the uh new season comes out on may 12th so you have time to finish the first season and read my piece on it it's it's basically about the last episode um about uh the use of ciliaplast the bell jar in um master of none and also a little bit about the manic pixie dream girl because i wasn't finished talking about it after we talked about her in pulp fiction uh, is there anywhere that people can get a hold of you? Sure, we can like talk. like the world to know about? Yeah, we can talk more about um, Master of None or about Fifth Element or Drive, any any movie you want to talk about or TV show. Um, I'm on Twitter at Dizen, D-I-E-Z-Y-N, and I'm also on Letterboxd uh, at the same D-I-E-Z-Y-N. Right on. 
Well, thanks again. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Dylan. That's everything for this episode from the Netflix podcast. If you liked what you heard today, head on over to netflixblog.wordpress.com to check out the rest of the Netflix content, like show notes, articles, and reviews. Today's show notes include all sorts of fun stuff. To start off, you can find links off to all the pieces that we talked about, including Caroline's piece on what Master of None got right and wrong about the Bell Jar and Manic Pixie Dreamgirls. We've got Caroline's take on the first season of Bloodline and how it fits in with the Southern Gothic genre. Since we recorded this, Caroline saw Wonder Woman and wrote a piece about it called The Strong Woman Superhero, comparing characters like Major Iceborg from The Fifth Element to Wonder Woman, as well as the review that I wrote about how The Fifth Element treats women. The other podcast episodes that we referenced that we'll be linking off to include episode 47, Ex Machina, episode 50, all about her, episode 53, about the girl with the dragon tattoo, episode 67, about Pulp Fiction, episode 68 about drive and our most recent episode number 69 which was all about room 237 i've embedded a couple of videos in there as well including the born sexy yesterday video that we talked about from the pop culture detective agency and the visual element which was the bonus feature that looks at the production design behind the fifth element and to finish you off we've got links to all of the movies and series that we talked about Uh, whether it's on Netflix or Amazon. So we're talking about Black Mirror, Bloodline, Dazed and Confused, Ex Machina, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Grace and Frankie, Her, Master of None, Nature's Weirdest Events, Pulp Fiction, Splash, and The Time Machine. You can find the Netflix podcast on our social media platforms. We're on Facebook as Netflix. We're on Twitter at NetflixPod. You can also find me there at Dylan Clark Moore. That's D-Y-L-A-N-C-L-A-R-K. M-O-O-R-E and we're on SoundCloud as Netflix Podcast you can find me on Letterboxd as Dylan Clark Moore if you'd like to support the show there are a few ways you can do so you can start by heading over to iTunes Google Play or whichever podcast platform you prefer and subscribing so that each new episode comes straight to you while you're there drop a rating and review to let us know what you think and even more importantly be sure to tell your friends about what we're doing here The other stream that we appear in is Electric Streams, which is available on all sorts of podcast platforms, which includes us as well as three other podcasts, uh, all in one convenient feed. You can also contribute directly to Netflix by way of our Patreon campaign. Whether it's for the rewards or just to see us keep doing what we're doing, you can pledge your support over at patreon.com. The Netflix podcast is produced and edited by me, Dylan Clark Moore. The theme music is provided by Zach Moore. Thank you very much for checking out this episode of the Netflix podcast and be sure to join me here next time for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog. Because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet.